Uh, do you realize that you have a limited amount of days on the earth? I know that today is one of your, one of your birthdays, so sorry to throw that on your birthday, but we have limited time on the earth. Uh, do you think about making your days count? While I think this would be perhaps more nerve-wracking than anything, uh, at least for a season, if you could get a watch that just had a big number that was counting down to the very last minute of your life, you, you could look at every single day, how do you think you would live? Do you think you would live differently on earth? The average lifespan on earth right now is about 72 and a half years. That's globally, so America is a little bit higher, if, if I remember, remember right, but globally it's about 72 and a half years. And Ephesians chapter 5 says this, says, Look carefully how then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So all I have to say that there is a way to waste your life. There's a way to live and think in such a way that our lives here on earth uh, would be spent foolishly. Now, your first thought should be, well, the, the first way to waste your life, uh, of course, the ultimate way, uh, would to live as an unbeliever, um, to live for sin, live in sin, to have all the things you've ever wanted, and then to die and face judgment. That, that would be the ultimate wasted life, right? We know that. However, it is possible for a Christian to live in such a way that they waste their lives. It's possible to live a life empty of thoughts towards God, forgetful of eternal things, and to live kind of like a clamshell. We just, we're closed up. We just don't deal with anything outside. We just, we're cloistered in the world. There's a way to do that. Uh, this week, I was um, meditating through 1 John chapter 2, and I want to read it to you, and I think it's very relevant to what we're going through today. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Many of you probably know this passage. It's very well known. It says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, how can we live in such a way that even when we die... We have done the will of God and abide forever. Because all these things are going to pass away. How can you live in such a way that you will abide forever? In Psalm 90, again, probably one of the first Psalms ever written, Moses tells us how to do so. Uh, Moses lived to be 120 years old. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7 says that. And it also says that when he died, that his vigor was unabated. So Moses died with life, right? He died with a satisfied life. How do we do that? Psalm 90, I think, gives us four truths to remember in this life, and we're, we're going to walk through them now. So if you have your Bibles, Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, we're going to first be told to remember God's eternality. So God is eternal. Remember God's eternality. Look at verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever he had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So Moses seems to stop and think, probably during the wilderness time, and just think about all their wanderings, and he thinks about his life and about what God has been. So think about Moses' life. He was born, uh, immediately floated down river, so quite the life to begin with. 
Uh, he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, right? So he was actually raised in a very wealthy home. He, he was literally the king's son, right? He lived in a wealthy home. Uh, he grew up. Um, he strikes down an Egyptian who was uh, oppressing one of the Israelites, and he kills the man. And like many of us, he runs for the hills. Uh, he becomes, he runs to Midian, becomes a shepherd, and then that's where he meets the Lord. He confronts Pharaoh with Aaron, right? He let my people go. He, Charlton Heston goes and he confronts Pharaoh, right? Moses has seen, he's seen the 10 plagues the Lord sent. He sees the Red Sea. He wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses has seen a lot of things and he's been everywhere. Acts chapter 7 says that he shepherded and he was in, uh, for his entire life from uh, before he was a shepherd to as a shepherd to wandering was 40 year span. So 120 years, 40 year blocks, doing many, much and many wanderings. Everything in his life is changing. His role, his age, the land he's in. But Moses tells us what remains the same. Look at verse 1. The Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever read the book of Numbers. If you're wondering what the first few chapters are, they're mostly Numbers. Uh, they're recalling us the people who are in uh, the wilderness, who are left, right? And Numbers chapter 33, it recalls all of the wanderings, all the places that the Israelites wandered uh, throughout their time. Do you know how many times during 40 years they stopped, camped, and got up? They moved 42 times. I've, I've moved like three times in my life, and each time has been very unpleasant. Moving is not fun. Imagine doing it 42 times. They were never the same place. They moved all the time. And yet the Lord was their true dwelling place, right? Moses rested and found his abode, his home in God. No matter where he was, he was dwelling and abiding and resting in God. He thought on God's word, he obeyed God's commandments, and he sought God in prayer. So no, no matter where we are in life, when we're moving, wherever we're going, God is our dwelling place. You can always find that wherever you are, you can feel at home, you can feel at rest because God is eternal. He's, he's always there where you are because he's always present. He's ever, he never changes. He's always the same, right? And we, like Moses, need to dwell and rest in God by faith, right? Oftentimes when things are changing, we, we feel like, I don't have any control over anything. Well, it's because we don't, <laughs> right? It's a good to be right that we don't have any control over anything. But when we remember that the Lord is our dwelling place, that we can, we can relinquish control, we, we can actually rest in life. You can actually rest, even if you're moving all the time. You can rest because you know that the Lord is eternal and He has it all under control. This is only true because of verse 2. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, does anybody know the first book that Moses ever wrote? I'm going to assume it was the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. Moses wrote this book. You're the first five books. And he knows in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God existed before creation. So this is what it means for God to be eternal, right? God is the creator who brings everything else into being uh, from everlasting to everlasting. So the Lord just simply is, right? We become, we, we age, we grow, we change, we develop. The Lord doesn't do any of those things. He never changes. He never improves. He doesn't get worse or weaken. If he could improve, that means that he was bad beforehand and now he's getting better, which he might need to get better later. 
So he can't improve because he's perfect. He doesn't weaken. He doesn't increase. He doesn't learn. He's perfect. He knows everything. His power is the same, right? Everything about God is eternal. It's almost as if, as if time and space were just something in front of him, something that he, just, he looks at. He's not even in time and space. He doesn't, he doesn't change, right? He, just, he stands, you can't really picture, but he stands outside of time as if he's looking through a window. And that's history. He just looks into it. He stands outside. That's what the Lord does. He stands outside everything. He's unchanging, yet he changes everything else. He's immovable, yet moves everything else. God simply is, right? In Exodus chapter 3, God says, I am who I am. Because God's eternal, this is good news for you and I. Because God is eternal means that everything that he is, is eternal. His attributes, God's knowledge, his power, his wisdom, his love, his goodness, never changes. In Psalm 136, it says this, The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And that psalm says that phrase 26 times, just in case you didn't know if it lasted forever. It does. 26 times. God's word is forever the same. His promises, his commandments, his laws, his threatenings are as, as real today as they will be 1,000 years from now. They will never change. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So this is your God, friends. This is who you look to. This is who takes care of you. He never changes. He never ages. He is always the same. He is holy, holy, holy. And just thinking about him, you can't even fathom what that even means. He never changes. And that's good news. So we in the world, how do we find rest? You are walking in the wilderness, so to speak. You're in a place in the world that's always changing. The world is changing every day. Everything seems to be changing all the time. How do you find rest when you realize you have no control over anything? Where do you go? Simply put, in two years from now, none of us have any idea what our country will be like. You have no idea what you will be like. How about 10 years from now? But we, what we do know is that God remains our refuge and our strength forever and ever. Mountains look immovable. That's why he's talking about mountains in verse 2. They look like they're never going to move anywhere. Those are more likely to move than God's love will move away from you. Isn't that good news? He will always be your Lord and God. We can flee to him who changes all things because he remains unchanging. When our health changes, we can trust him who doesn't change. When careers change, you can find your identity in the unchanging Christ. When life changes, look forward to an unchanging, everlasting life. Do you understand the rhythm here? When everything is changing, bank your life on things that don't change, namely God. You probably know this song. Change and decay all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. The first thing you need to know is that God never changes. He is always the same. Number two, you need to remember the exact opposite. Remember that we are mortal. So remember God's eternality. Now remember our mortality. Look at verses three through six. So it's a big contrast, right? God never changes. He stands outside, and yet we are... The exact opposite. We change every single day, especially if you know if you have kids or even just look, look at yourself in the mirror. I, I like yearbooks, but boy, are they disappointing. Um, I like Facebook memories, but boy, do they sometimes bum me out. Things have changed. And there's good and bad. And it's encouraging to see, but oftentimes we realize that things have changed. Everyone and everything 
will change. We stand as mortal creatures. We are indeed created to live forever, and we will live somewhere beyond death. But because of sin, all of us actually will die. To say it very, very starkly, um, nobody is getting out of this planet alive. There's not. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust, and you say, return, O children of man. Sounds like, if you, if you know your Bible, it sounds like Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, what is God, what is his pronouncement among, on man? Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, he says this, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice in this entire section, verses 3 through 6, this is all God's doing. So God is the one who, who ends our life, who sustains our life, who brings us to the point where he says, Okay, return, right? This is God's doing. He's over all of it. Um, Adam and Eve would have lived forever if they didn't disobey. They would, right? Don't eat the fruit. Okay. But they did. So they, because they sinned, they died, right? That's why we die, because of sin. They broke God's commandments, so they broke God's covenant with God. Look at verse 4. It tells us that a thousand years is but a few hours in the night of the Lord. <laughs> think about your, in, in history class, when you go through all these wars and all these things, and what do you think? Man, it's been like hundreds of years. And in God's sight, it's like a mere second. How old is our country? Does anybody know? Less than 300 years. you know that? How long is that to God? Like a second? I mean, just that. Like how many generations have gone? How many inventions? How many wars? How many kingdoms and rulers have risen up in the world? And to God, it's nothing. That's what eternity is like. It's nothing compared to him. Look at verses 5 and 6. We get this, this final picture of man's mortality. We are <clears throat> like grass that fades and withers. Think of Moses during his time as he wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, they could not enter. The, they had to wander for 40 years because uh, they disobeyed God. So God said, okay, this generation, um, I promise you won't make it. I will make sure you die off. And we believe that when they left Egypt, there were numbers. We don't really have a number of the exact number. We think because of other numbers in the book of Numbers and in Deuteronomy that we think there are about half a million to maybe two million Israelites that left Egypt. And God said, I'm going to wipe out a whole generation in 40 years. Just wander all you want. Can you think of how many thousands of funerals that was? Every day, probably another funeral. Again and again and again. Moses sees this. He sees death after death. He sees God's hand. He sees the sorrow and pain of death. And what does Moses conclude? We are just like grass, just gone, here and gone. John Owen said this, that Satan's greatest success is in making people think they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. Those, those are sobering words. However, not so sobering as the book of James. Uh, perhaps you know this section in the book of James. James chapter 4 that's uh, one of the most well-known portions in James, I think, that speaks to this. James 4, verse 13 through 16 says this. I want to read it to you. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, <clears throat> spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So we should live in such a way that we think, if the Lord wills, I'll make it there tomorrow. Having planned, like you should plan things out. We'll be there tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 a.m. 5 a.m. 5 p.m. Don't do that. You should plan things out. You should set schedules and make appointments. You should do those. And we should live in such a way that we're not banking on our certainty, but on God's eternity. Remember, verse 3 says that every man will die because of God's word. He will command us to stand before him. Which is good news because even the most evil and terrifying dictators in the world will stand before God. They will not go unpunished, right? It's good news. It also means that the gentlest people we know will also stand before God. The book of Ecclesiastes says that it says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And it says that sorrow is better than happiness because it makes the heart glad. And you think, do you just need a hug, Solomon? Like, are you okay? You just need to hug the guy. Why is he saying that? What he's saying is, he's saying consider that if we live in such a way that we never think about death, think about eternity, we're living foolishly. It's unwise to not think about those things. Why is that? <clears throat> consider this. Every single day, about 150,000 people die every single day. The question is then, who is next? Your neighbor? A co-worker? Your server at the restaurant? You? So death is like a smelling salt to wake us up, right? Every, every, every time there's a funeral, what do we do? If you're like me, you, man, it's coming. It's coming, right? It just stunts your, it just Keeps you from sleeping, right? It wakes you up. Helps, helps you not to be asleep in a world of pleasure and ease and comfort. I wonder, as a church, how different would our mission and focus be like if we thought about the reality of death? How different would your faithfulness and evangelism be at work if you thought about the reality of death for your coworkers? How much of your time in life would be reordered if you thought about the reality of death? John Wesley said this, I judge all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. So remember God's eternality, remember our mortality. And now, number three, remember God's wrath. Look at verses 7 through 11. This is the answer to why death even exists. Again, in the book of Genesis, there was no death, right? Uh, the reason why death feels so wrong and not right and not natural is because it's not natural, right? It's not right. It's wrong. It's a, it's an infection. It's God's judgment. It's not supposed to be here, but it is because of sin, right? God has justly sentenced the world to death and decay because of sin. If you read Genesis chapter three, you can see that the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death, right? That's what it means. It's physical and spiritual death, right? So God's wrath is real, and God's wrath is a right response to sin and evil. If you look at verse 7, 9, and 11, Moses writes of God's wrath each time in verse 7 and in verse 9 and verse 11, meaning he wants us to see that, right? Um, I repeat things because people don't hear them, so I repeat things because people don't hear them, right? Uh, it helps us to, okay, I get it, Moses. I understand it's important. I understand. I'm listening, right? He saw God's anger and wrath revealed again and again. Think about their wanderings. Uh, what did the Israelites do all the time? It's what I always do. 
they grumbled. And boy, are they good at it. Grumble, grumble, grumble. They would walk in unbelief. They'd walk in idolatry. They had open immorality with other nations. And God responds with judgment. As he should, right? All people die because of sin. Because we were born sinners in Adam. We will be judged as a sinner because we are in Adam, right? Because we have sinned. So before sin, there was no death. After sin, now death is deserved. And God's wrath is the just punishment for our sins. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says these very, very shocking words. It says this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So why is God's wrath supposed to be fearful? Well, think about what we just talked about. If God is eternal, what does that mean about how long his wrath is? It's eternal. It's forever. For it's eternal in power and in length. God's wrath is real because God's goodness is real. It's good that God detests evil. It's good. If he didn't deal with sin and sinners, he would be an unjust judge. We should impeach him, right? But he's good. So God's judgment upon Adam's life is the reason why our physical bodies and creation decays. But the truest form of God's wrath is after one dies, they must give an account to God. This is indeed a fearful thing. Look at verse 8. For you have set our iniquities before you and our, I'm sorry, before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So we've said before, there are no secret sins. God sees right through them, right? We can't close the door and turn the lights off. God just sees like it's bright as day, right? Because of that, sin then is eternally serious. The sins we coddle and take lightly without even a thought, any of them, all of them, are extremely high treasons against God. Now, when I was growing up, I never understood that. How come someone could tell one lie and they go to hell forever? Well, it seemed very fair. Like they just mess up one time. Never understood that. I hope this helps to make more sense. Um, if I lie to my children who are very small and can't do anything to me, what are they going to do? They probably won't even know, but, oh, daddy. Okay. Uh, if I lie to Kelly, where will I be at? Now, normally I would say the couch, but Kelly didn't like sleeping alone, so I'd probably be okay. But theoretically, I would be on the couch, right? If I lie to my boss, what could happen? I could be fired, right? Uh, lastly, if I lie to the government, that's called treason. It's pretty serious. So what has changed? What's changed is the authority against who I've committed a crime against. What stays the same is the crime. I've always lied. But the higher the authority, the higher the punishment, right? It makes sense. So same way, if we lie against God, it's not just, oh, it's just a little lie. No, no, no. It's, it's against the eternal authority, right? So he dishes out eternal punishment, right? It makes sense because sin is that high because God is that high. So friends, think of those around you who, if they were to be found dead tomorrow morning, would they be under God's wrath? Look at verse 10. Life is at best 70 Maybe 80 years filled with toil and trouble. That's a wasted life, right? C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, uh, but he shouts to us in our pain. Why is that? Because when pain happens, what do you do? You're awake. Ah, this is bad, right? You're, you're awakened to reality again. It's a megaphone, he says, to rouse a deaf world. Suffering and death are meant to paint a picture of the ugliness of sin. 
and to serve the unbeliever that they would recognize that there is an eternal suffering and an eternal death. And I say this very, very lightly. After 10,000 years in hell, they are no closer to being done than they were when they began. Do you realize that? 10,000, you're not even close. That hasn't begun. So verse 11 then, consider verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So friends, this should mobilize us for evangelism. There is no reality in the Bible, I think, quite like the doctrine of hell, to awaken me to not be a coward, because I am a coward. If I consider God's wrath and God's power, I will then consider I shouldn't be scared of what anybody thinks. Who cares what they think? Who cares what they're going to say to me? I I shouldn't ever care. Charles Spurgeon said this, if sinners be damned, at least, at least leap them, let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Everyone you see today will, apart from Christ, spend eternity under God's wrath. Forever. And may no one ever go there because I was too much of a chicken. I don't want to be a chicken. I want to be courageous. I want to have boldness. I want to be caring and loving. May we fear more what God thinks rather than what we think. So ask yourselves, even now, when was the last time I've shared the gospel with somebody? What does this tell me about what I think about the church's mission and what I believe about Christ and my neighbor? So here's what I would recommend. Since oftentimes unbelievers do not come through our doors, what should we do in response? We should go to them. We know where they are, right? Just throw a rock and probably smack their door out in your front yard, right? Maybe not here because I live with no neighbors. But uh, you can open your door and chuck a rock and probably smack an unbeliever's door, right? That would be your next target. So be encouraged that you should go to them. Take a track, send an email, a text, ask a question, read a verse, knock on the door. Hey, can I bring you this? And then, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? Oh, you don't? Well, great. Do it. Be encouraged, right? Lastly, number four, remembering God's gospel. This is why we come to church. We hear the goodness of God. We hear about God's eternity. We hear about our reality of death. We hear about God's curse and wrath. And then we hear about the goodness of God's gospel. Look at verses 12 through 17. If you notice these truths, each one, they build on the next one. Well, that's true. This is true. This one's true. This one's really true. But these all three are true, that God's eternal, that man is mortal, and that God has a real wrath, how much sweeter is God's gospel? Look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days. We need to know how to live in the world. We are reminded of the sweetness of God's compassion. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. That is our only plea. God, if these things are true, please have mercy for me. And on the mercy of God that overflowed for us in Christ, we are saved from God's wrath. If you're in Christ, none of that is coming for you. 
Picture a dam, just the dam falls down, the water's flowing, right? And a hole opens up and all the water just falls into this huge hole. That's you. All wrath is gone. It's removed. You have nothing to fear in life, nothing to fear in death. I was telling my wife just yesterday, um, uh, I, run, I, I drive for FedEx and I, I go to Lake Wacomus. It's a beautiful area, nice houses. People are always very nice. And I just can't stand dogs. I'll be upfront with you. I like dogs. But when it's not my dog, oh, it's a nice dog. You don't know that because he doesn't know who I am. So this lady has a dog outside, and I run past it, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm skittish. Okay, it's a big dog. It's tall, it's tall as I am. I feel like it, it, could, it looks like a horse, but it's a dog. Uh, it might bite me. And so I just kind of walk really gently by and give her a box. She says, oh, don't worry, the dog won't bite. Okay, whatever, you know. She says, no, he doesn't have any teeth. Oh, okay. Friends, if you're a Christian, that's how death should be like. It is scary has no teeth. It's been defanged, right? There's no punishment after. It's nothing to worry about anymore. Just walk right by it, right? So we shouldn't fear anything because in Christ, God's wrath, the, the pain of death is removed, right? Ephesians chapter 2 says this, God is rich in mercy. On the cross, the riches of his mercy shine so brightly towards us. Look at verse 13, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice all of our days. So God's everlasting love, so again, his everlasting being, his everlasting wrath, and now you hear of his everlasting love, his steadfast love. So friends, if you're a believer, you have nothing but steadfast love all of your days. Isn't that good news? And it satisfies. It was Moses' dwelling place, and in Christ it is our dwelling place. It is immovable. It is our rest, our joy, and our satisfaction. <clears throat> now God's wrath may motivate us to flee to flee to him, but God's love will keep me bound to him. God doesn't, want, God doesn't want people who are fearful to come to him, though that should be part of it. He wants you to come to him because, wow, he's really, really good. Where else would I go? I go to him, I'm going to him. That's what, he, that's what your desire for Christ should be. It shouldn't be fear. It should be mainly love for him, not fear of his wrath because it's gone. God's mercy and grace are free towards us in Christ. They cost him his son, but they're free for us. The cross of Christ is proof that God loves sinners, that he loves us. In a shaky, dry time, in a time of fear or doubt, if you wonder if God loves you, what should you look to? The cross. That's how you know. It, it, it's a guarantee. He's for you. He gives up his son for you, right? His son takes that wrath and gives you nothing but mercy all of your days. That's the gospel. Who are we that we deserve only his wrath, yet we get his heart, we get his son? How can we live any different? Satisfy us. So look what Moses is saying. He's saying, satisfy us. Make us glad. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us. So joy in life, happiness in our wandering can only happen when we are satisfied with the unmeasurable and eternal riches of God. Philippians 1.21, a verse that, if you don't know, I hope you memorize it. It's very short. <clears throat> For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As a Christian, you can enjoy your life correctly because I get Christ now, and I, and I give him for eternity later. Pretty good life. Got nothing to worry about. Psalm 1611 says this, At God's right hand there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And we know from the New Testament at God's right hand sits our resurrected, exalted Christ. His unwavering love, his unshakable mercy towards me, that's where I'm going. That's where I want. I want Christ in life, and I get him afterwards. 
So Jesus is the one who can satisfy our souls. And at a time where we need to dwell in God, we can see the glory of God in the, cro- in the cross of Christ. Look at verse 17 as we close. Let the favor of our Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, <clears throat> our work for him will never be in vain. Do you know that? As a Christian, all your faithfulness to God, whether seen or unseen, big or small, is never wasted. Isn't that good news? The things no one sees that you're doing in faith because what God's word says, it's not in vain. It actually means something because God's eternal and your life actually means something. No obedience is wasted. No life is small. In Christ, all life matters because Christ is eternal. So therefore, in verse 12, again, Lord, teach us to number our days. May God teach us that our children and grandchildren have about, and I looked this up yesterday, this is just a, a, a random guess. I looked it up. I do my homework. Our children and grandchildren have about a 6 to 12% chance of becoming a millionaire. Okay, so it's possible. However, they have a 100% chance of standing before God. Do they know that? May God teach us that here on earth, we'll, we're all part of the largest statistic. Congratulations. 10 out of 10 of us will die. So may we live for the glory of Christ, the spread of his gospel, and the establishment of the church and the good of our neighbors. May God teach us that eternity is indeed eternal, and that all that we do here on earth really does matter. Two more. May God teach us that what matters is not what we have or don't have, but what we do with what we have. Lastly, may God teach us that God's steadfast love endures forever and that only he and he alone can satisfy us and make us glad all our days. As the hymn rightly says, Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. Let's pray.